You're listening to Constitutionally Sound from the Center on Constitutional Change. We'll be back in your feeds with new episodes in September, but for now, please enjoy this episode from our archive. For more from us throughout the summer, please visit our website, centeronconstitutionalchange.ac.uk, for the latest blogs and analysis. Hello and welcome to Constitutionally Sound, a podcast by the Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Alan Little, I'm a journalist and broadcaster, and I'll be guiding you through this, the fourth episode in our series, and this one addresses the question of Labour and the Union. 75 years ago, a Labour government, arguably the most radical in British history, took a country broken by the experience of the Second World War and reinvented Britain and Britishness comprehensive national insurance, a national health service, universal welfare from cradle to grave, the nationalisation of the great Victorian industries, coal, steel, shipbuilding brought into public ownership, a new idea of the role the state should play in shaping the character of the nation. And it was, of course, a great pan-British enterprise built on a set of values and aspirations around which the nations of Britain could cohere in a single shared sense of identity. The 1980s and 90s saw the dismantling of much of that post-war consensus. When she rolled back the frontiers of the 1940s laborist state, did Margaret Thatcher also inadvertently start the unravelling of a shared British identity too? And if she did, what is the role that Labour now plays in shaping a coherent sense of what it is to be British? Well, I'm joined now by Carwin Jones as a member of the Senate and was First Minister of Wales from 2009 to 2018. He's also served as Minister of the Environment, Planning and Countryside and Minister for Education, Culture and the Welsh Language. He's a Professor of Law at Aberystwyth University. Corrie Brown-Swan is Deputy Director of the Centre for Constitutional Change and works on questions of independence and the union and intergovernmental relations. She has just completed research on how the Labour Party has engaged with the politics of territorial identity and the union. So who better to guide us through the next half hour? Carwin Jones, let me start with you. How has Labour managed to stay the dominant party in Wales when in Scotland the party has so spectacularly lost that dominant position? Well, quite simply what we did uh, was we moved on to the ground of identity and, and, and sat there. I mean, basically we saw that uh, the vast bulk of the people of Wales were people who were patriotic devolutionists, uh, although they wouldn't call themselves that, people who would be tempted to vote for Plaid Cymru if they thought that the Labour Party in Wales was running away from a sense of Welshness. So we embraced it. Uh, we said, you know, we're pr- a proudly Welsh party. We described ourselves as Welsh Labour. Uh, we were uh, maximalists and still are in terms of uh, devolution. And as a result of that, in my view anyway, a lot of those people who would have been tempted to vote for Plaid and then would have moved on to the ground of independence didn't do so. But everything you say about the party in Wales is also true of the party in Scotland. It was proudly Scottish. It called itself Scottish Labour. It was the Labour Party, remember, who introduced the uh, Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly in 1999. Everything you say about the party in Wales also applies to the party in Scotland, and yet there's this very, very visible difference. When you look at the Scottish Party, what do you think they got wrong? Well, from from the outside, uh, one of the impressions I had was that when the issue of Scottish identity became uh, a much more, a much stronger issue in politics, that they, they moved away from the ground, that they were a little bit 
uh, reluctant to move on to that ground and say, no, no, you can be proudly Scottish uh, and yet not be in favour of independence. Uh, and that ground seemed then to be colonised by the SNP. And those people who were devolutionists ended up as supporters of independence. If I look at Wales now, uh, the opinion polls in Wales are very similar to the polls in Scotland, say, 15 years ago, where about a quarter of the population is supportive of independence. About 40% of Labour voters themselves would vote for independence. The question then, of course, is how does Welsh Labour keep those people rather than see those people drift off towards uh, being supportive of independence? Corey, when you think that uh, Labour won every election, local Scottish parliamentary Westminster general elections for 50 years, pretty much in Scotland, and then lost it all almost overnight, do you agree with that characterisation of what's happened in Scotland compared to Wales with Carwin Jones? Absolutely. I think there was a sense that the Labour Party ceded the ground of standing up to uh, standing up for Scotland to the SNP. Um, I think that the party really has struggled to adapt to opposition. There's a sense that there was a sense in 2007 that, that the SNP victory was an aberration, things would be set to right. And since 2014 in particular, that seems to have exacerbated its woes, a sense that something isn't right, that Scotland isn't naturally nationalist and will return to Labour. And it hasn't been able to position itself in an electoral space largely defined by constitutional issues. It can't out-nationalist the nationalists, and it can't out-unionist the conservatives. And for many voters, it's unclear where the party stands on the topic of a referendum on independence, and its rivals have the advantage of having very clear-cut positions. Um, many of the Scottish Labour representatives that I interviewed said, well, I didn't join the Labour Party to talk about the Constitution. But the problem is, if you can't talk credibly about the Constitution in a Scottish political context, which is very much defined by constitutional debates, no one gets to hear what, what else you'd like to say. So I think their attempt at finding a middle way appears to be lost on the electorate. Let me put an alternative um, position to you both, and one that uh, is, in a sense, directly opposite to, to what Carwin Jones just argued. And I've been watching Scottish politics and British politics now for 40 years, since I cast my first vote in 1979 in that ill-fated devolution referendum of, uh, of that year. And it seems to me that what has happened, what has really changed, is not, a, it's not any party moving onto the territory of Scottish identity, but parties moving away from the, the, the territory of British identity. It's not so much a rise of Scottish, uh, uh, the feeling of being Scottish, it's a falling away of what it means to be British. And the SNP recognised that very quickly. And from the 1980s onwards, it moved away from the politics of identity and started colonising territory, which was more naturally Labour's territory, which is to say the social justice agenda. Carwin Jones, do you accept that there's something in that? I don't think that contradicts uh, what was said earlier. Uh, the SNP have done that. But of course, it happened in Scotland, but it didn't happen in Wales. What were the different factors? I'd argue that we... We were quite upfront about uh, our pride in our Welsh identity. Our, our strapline uh, for the 2011 election was standing up for Wales. It was the same in 2016. It caused some um, issues for us because the uh, the word for up in the north of Wales is different to the word for up in the south of Wales. So getting the strapline in Welsh right was uh, a neutral, was a bit of a challenge. But I, I think you're right. I mean, your analysis at the beginning, uh, Alan, is right. The, the reach of the British state is much diminished compared to what it was. And you, I tend to find the older generation, the people who are still sceptical of devolution sometimes, dead against independence. So they're, they're people who remember working for the British state. They worked for the NCP, worked for the British Steel Corporation, worked in other nationalised industries. They saw the reach of the welfare state. They saw a far more interventionist government. And for them, that's what 
uh, drove their British identity, and that's weakened. You know, young people now who are you know split on the idea of independence, and it's almost fifty-fifty. They have no memory of that, and so their sense of a shared British identity is much, much weaker. They don't. The Union Jack weaving doesn't appeal to them at all. Uh, all the traditional sort of symbols of Britishness, as, as the as the Whitehall ruling classes would see it, uh, have no appeal to young people. And so the big challenge is how to create a sense of common purpose in a new way uh, across this island. Because if we try and say, well, let's take things back or let's keep things as they are, there won't be, you know, I'm blunt about it, there won't be a UK in 10 years. Right, well, we want to come on to that in a second, but let me just get a, uh, a response from Corey on that question. Did the SNP capture the dominant role in Scottish politics by moving on to the territory of social justice and away from the, the politics of the identity and the flag? I think so. In many ways, the, the party's ideological development demonstrated that it was moving towards towards where the majority of people in Scotland position themselves. Um, so adopting that social justice focus, that more progressive left-wing identity. Um, and so Labour has been kind of been quite squeezed um, because the SNP is competing on its territory with this additional message around nationalism around constitutional change. And um, so it's difficult for Labour to compete in that space. Let me move on now to Labour's response to the strain that the union's under. Mark Drayford, uh, who's now, of course, the First Minister of Wales, has said that the UK needs to be radically redrawn because the breakup of the UK was now a real and present danger. Keir Starmer is talking about a constitutional convention to uh, radically reform the British state as well. Carwin Jones, what do you think is happening in the Labour Party? How will this constitutional reimagining take place? How will it operate? Well, there are different views as to what it should look like. I can offer you my view. I think the fundamental problem we have in the UK is parliamentary sovereignty, which may or may not exist in Scotland. That's a debate for another time. But this idea that all power rests in Westminster and you know, powers are thrown out at you know, complaining Celts uh, from time to time just to keep them quiet shows that, that we've never looked properly at, at how the UK works. Uh, we've never really, they've never really understood that there are now several centres of democratic accountability, not just Westminster. So we need a system that is more federal. What does that mean for me? We recognise that there are four territories and nations. Northern Ireland is more complicated, I, I grant you that, because of the Good Friday Agreement, all of which are voluntary partners and voluntary members of the union. That means that Scotland and Wales would, be, would, be, would see themselves as sovereign, but part of that sovereignty would be pooled, such as in areas like defence, borders and immigration, the fiscal and monetary union, uh, so that that sovereignty wouldn't lead to independence. Now, there's a question mark as to whether that's too late to make that offer in Scotland, but certainly it's something that we need to do. We were, you, know, you, you referred to the 1945 Labour government. It was a radical reforming government. If we are to keep the best of the UK uh, and the best of a common purpose, the UK needs radical reform. The idea that somehow everything is in the hands of Westminster, where governments are elected by a minority of the electors and can do what they want for five years and are completely lawless, that has to be ditched, in my view. Uh, Corey, do you see a constitutional convention with Labour uh, over the next few years with Labour in opposition gaining traction in Whitehall and Westminster? Um, so this is something that's been in Labour manifestos for quite some time, the idea of a constitutional convention. An MP under Corbyn was tasked with moving this forward, but we've seen very little progress. And I wonder, outside of government and without an imminent general election, how much traction these proposals will gain? Um, if we And if we fast forward to 2024 and Labour forms the government, 
would these proposals be prioritized among the many different policy challenges facing an incoming government? Looking to Westminster and Whitehall more broadly, we see a lot of talk about the union from the conservative government, but this largely appears to be making the case for the union or perhaps saving the union rather than undertaking a program of of constitutional reform or looking critically at how the UK is governed. So I think there's, there's a difficulty in bringing everyone on board with these ideas and creating a momentum for a broader conversation about what the UK looks like. Okay, let me ask Carwin. Keir Starmer, for example, talks about uh, a phase of radical economic and political devolution across the UK. What would that mean, for example, for the vital question of tax and social security devolution? At the moment, still some tax raising powers devolved to the Scottish Parliament, notwithstanding, which remains very, very centralised. And again, that is part of the legacy of the 1945 to 51 Labour government, which which centralised everything in Whitehall. The government famously saying that if a nurse drops a bedpan in Salford, it will echo around the corridor of Whitehall. I mean, what uh, uh, what would it mean for tax and social security devolution in, in your aspirations? Well, I mean, we we have tax varying powers as well. I mean, a third of income tax in Wales goes to, is raised and set by the Welsh government. Stamp duty, as was in England, LTT as it is in Wales, uh, that's been devolved. Uh, more sceptical of corporation tax and you know, the, the dangers of a race to the bottom if, uh, if that happened. I think the, the balance is between creating as much tax devolution as possible to encourage creativity amongst uh, the devolved governments, while at the same time realising there are some taxes that are best collected um, across the UK and redistributed from there. But VAT, for me, would be one example. You know, VAT is a tax that is, the, the, you know, in Wales, we benefit from seeing it collected centrally uh, and then redistributed. So I don't think we, we, we should be in a position where we say, well, everything is, every tax is devolved. And then we find some way of pooling those taxes in the future. I think you have to look carefully at each tax to decide uh, how best that tax would meet your, your objectives as a Labour Party member of ensuring that money goes where it's needed across the UK. Now, for me, uh, the Barnet formula, and I say this now to a Scottish audience, is wrecked. I mean, it, it's clearly out of date. And it's actually ignored by the UK Treasury when it sees fit. I mean, Northern Ireland had a billion pounds in 2017. At least a third of that should have led to a Barnet consequential. It was utterly ignored. By, by the Treasury. We tried to invoke the dispute resolution process under the intergovernmental machinery and we're told there is no dispute. It was, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. So there's a, there's, a, there's a serious need to reform the way in which A, money is raised and B, money is, is redistributed across the whole of the UK. So at the moment, it all depends on a capricious Treasury. But in terms of the proportion of public money that is spent, the, the amount spent by central government in Britain is, I think, highest in Europe. And it sounds like you're arguing for a continuation of that on the grounds that a central government will be, will be able to dispose tax income much more equitably by allocating it where it's needed. That doesn't sound like a, a manifesto for radical reform to me. Well, I think what you have to do is to examine uh, whether or not a tax, if a tax was devolved, it would lead to disadvantage. Now, when it comes to income tax, we were content to take over a third of income tax. That's worked well for us. Same with, um, with, with LTT or stamp duty, as it is in, uh, in England. We were very reluctant to take on board more devolution of the welfare state because we knew it would cost. Uh, and it would mean that there'd be less money available for the, the, the people who needed it most. I mean, Scotland had a fair bit of devolution of the welfare system. It, I think it cost a million pounds to set up a new... Um, the new system, we, that was unattractive for us. So I don't think there's a hard or fast rule to say, right, these taxes here should be devolved and these taxes here should not be devolved. I think you look at each one to see what the overall effect is across the union. Because if you're saying we need a new union, it doesn't mean you get rid of the union. You still want to keep the ability of the of that structure to redistribute money across the whole of the UK. 
and you need to have a careful look at all the taxes to see where they should best sit. Or indeed, they should be split, whether, whether it should be partial, uh, partial devolution of a tax like income tax. Okay, Corey, let me ask you, is there a, is there a kind of cultural, an entrenched cultural reluctance in Whitehall and Westminster to go down this path? Whitehall does still tend to regard local government in England in particular, as existing really to implement policies that are decided in Whitehall. Is that an obstacle to the kind of radical change that Keir Starmer and Mark Drayford say they want? I think that's that's perhaps the case. We do see that that idea of the Treasury being, being quite territorial, perhaps. Um, and we've st- seen with the, the metropolitan mayors and the kind of city devolution deals, a tension between the ability to raise funds, spend those funds freely, and the demands and requirements of Whitehall. So I do think there is a perhaps centralizing culture and perhaps also a lack of understanding of of devolution within some of those central institutions and exactly how devolution works um, and how the governments relate to each other as well. Carwin mentioned the, the struggle around intergovernmental relations and raising those disputes. The reform required might be in the broad constitutional processes, but also in those administrative processes as well. Let me ask you about Labour's uh, tricky relationship with the future uh, independence referendum in Scotland and perhaps one day in Wales as well. At the moment, the party's position is that uh, we had a referendum in Scotland in 2014 and the Scottish people decided then. Is that an op- is that opposition to a referendum open-ended? In the 1980s, for example, remember, Labour was very lukewarm about devolution. Many, many, especially Scottish MPs who sat for English constituencies were very hostile to the idea. I remember Robin Cook, who was an Edinburgh MP in those days, being very strongly opposed to devolution until I think the 1987 election defeat. And Labour moved on to the territory of devolution and ended up very strongly uh, a champion of it. Will we see a similar shift in Labour's attitude to a referendum or will it continue to say to the Scottish people, you can't have another referendum and therefore it sort of doesn't matter what you vote for. If you, if you, if you go on voting for a second referendum, it doesn't matter because we're not going to let you have it. Is that a sustainable position, Carwin Jones? No, quite simply. I mean, Scottish politics is very different to Welsh politics in the, in the sense that in, in Welsh politics, the, the, there's a non-party independence movement uh, if I drive down the road to my house, I'll, walk, I'll, I'll drive past one of the posters uh, advertising in independent Wales. There are Labour Party members who are active in it. So uh, in Wales, being a member of the Labour Party and being in favour of independence is not quite as uh, contradictory as it might be in Scotland. The divide isn't quite as uh, as, as large. If you, look, if you look at 2015, David Cameron was elected on, the, on a manifesto promise to hold a Brexit referendum. And he had a Brexit referendum. If the SNP win a majority in May on the basis of, how, of uh, calling for a second referendum, it's very difficult to oppose that, quite frankly. And my, my great worry is that if you have, and what I describe, I mean, Boris Johnson is the head of a, of a government that's, that's very English nationalist in its outlook, very anti-Scottish, actually, anti-everybody else, to my, to my, in my perspective. If you keep on saying no to Democrats, you give sucker to people who are far more extreme. There are consequences of saying no to a democratic election result. And that's something that we should all bear in mind very, very, uh, very, very deeply. We saw this, didn't we, in the 1980s and 90s, Corey, when uh, the Thatcher and major governments continued to say no to devolution for Scotland and Wales. And that those 18 years of Conservative government turned a very lukewarm public commitment to uh, a weak manifesto for devolution in 1979 into a solid three to one majority for a 
primary legislative parliament in 1997. Do you think continued resistance to a second referendum in Westminster will have a similar effect on public opinion on independence? And it particularly, if you look at the age demographic of the, in the opinion polls, the younger the audience, the younger the, the people polled, the more strongly they are in favour of independence. It, it, un, under the age of 40, there is often a a two-thirds majority in favour of independence. That would suggest that the longer Westminster holds out against a second referendum, the worse it gets for the union, Corey. I think that is a concern. I think the refusal to engage with the idea of a referendum or entertain the idea of another independence referendum will bolster support um, for independence in Scotland. Um, But I guess the challenge is how do you move that support that we're seeing in the polls that we've seen in, in 20 polls in a row and majority of support for independence? How do you move that towards towards independence if you if the UK government says no? I mean, I think the preference of the SNP and, and the preference for, for the yes movement is for a legal, constitutionally binding referendum. Um, but I think Carwin's right in that you you might activate more radical forces by saying continually saying no to a referendum. Carwin, your own party is keeping on saying no as well. This is we're, we're devoting this half hour to look at how Labour is responding to the strains in the union. Are you saying that the Labour Party, if there's a, a pro-independence majority at Holyrood after May, the Labour Party should change its position on second independence and offer to grant one? My preferred option would be to, to have uh, an offer of radical constitutional change um, for the, all the people of the UK. But I think it applies to all of us just to answer the question. You cannot keep on saying no forever and a day. You have to think of something different. And if you can't think of something different and offer something different, you can't can't just keep on saying no. Does that open the door to a different kind of referendum question, a referendum uh, on perhaps a a multi-choice referendum, not a straight binary yes or no, but a, but a, a referendum offering people in Scotland initially, but perhaps even people in the United Kingdom, although it's hard to see there was much public appetite for for a referendum on this question. Uh, And I think if people had a referendum in England on whether they wanted a referendum, they would vote no. Do you see the possibility of a different kind of referendum, one perhaps offering the kind of constitutional reform that you're suggesting rather than independence? Not just in Scotland. I mean, the, the fundamental basis of my argument is we need to reform the UK, and if we say, okay, we'll have we'll have one arrangement for one part of the UK, uh, and then we look at the rest afterwards, it, it, it just is tinkering. It, it's not um, getting to grips with the fundamental need to reform the UK as a whole at once. Uh, so no, I wouldn't be afraid of that, and I don't see, I don't think that would work. I think you have to have something far more radical. I mean, what would it be? A referendum on what uh, exactly? It, it's difficult to see. I'm not sure what else Scotland can get devolved. Uh, short of becoming independent. But I think there's a fundamental issue here, and that is, how do you say in the long term, no, 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 when people in Scotland keep on voting, yes, yes, yes? That's a fundamental problem that can can only end badly. So, Corey, then we run up against the problem of the asymmetrical nature of the union, England being 84% of the population of the United Kingdom, and English indifference, English public indifference to constitutional reform. There isn't, There is very little appetite for the, the kind of radical reform that Carwin is advocating now outside of the Celtic nations. Absolutely. And I think that's the struggle in some of these conversations about constitutional reform in the United Kingdom versus um, in other federal or decentralized countries where you have more units and, and more perhaps balanced units in terms of population. Appears to be a lack of political will for any sort of devolution at an England-wide level. Perhaps there's more support for 
more empowered local government. But the asymmetric nature of the United Kingdom is, is quite difficult to overcome through some sort of constitutional reform. Would you divide up England into into counties or into into some sort of predetermined bits? And then would you put them on the same level as Wales and Scotland in terms of their competences and powers? And so it has been, I mean, that's been a thorny political question um, for for many, many decades. How do you deal, how do you reform the United Kingdom given those asymmetries? I've got two more things I want to put to you both. Uh, we're running out of time, though, so I'm going to ask you to be uh, very brief if you can. The first is, how does Brexit change this equation? Because, of course, in Scotland and Northern Ireland, there were strong majorities against Brexit. And in England and Wales, both, there were small majorities in favour. And in particular, the, uh, the, the way that powers returning from Brussels are being disposed in the UK as between Westminster and the devolved administrations. We hear talk now of the United Kingdom government wanting to spend money in Scotland with a Union Jack flag on it. Carwin Jones, you must be very conscious of this in Wales as well. Yeah, very true. Uh, I, I, I think it's a huge mistake, to be honest with you. I, th- I think this is trying to turn the clock back uh, to a time that, that disappeared many, many years uh, years ago. The way to persuade people that the union's worth keeping is to reform it and not wave a union jacket people. That just doesn't work. Look, in Wales, if I was to see somebody with a union jacket outside the house, I'd assume one of the two things. Either one, they've got somebody in the military, or two, they're a conservative order. There's no other way. No one else would do it. So you have a flag that's, that's and in Northern Ireland, is even more politicised, but, but the union jacket is not a is not a neutral flag in that sense. And I think, you know, there's such a sense of naivety in Whitehall about, about the future. Now, I've heard Brexiteers arguing the exact opposite when it comes to independence as they did for Brexit. Taking back control you know, works both ways. I heard a Wales office minister this week argue that independence would mean that people in Wales couldn't live or study in England and couldn't sell goods to England. What, what a blockade is what he was suggesting, in effect. And I think that's part of the problem. The, the, what Boris Johnson is trying to do is to have a sort of union jack-weaving unionism that might appeal in England but doesn't appeal outside England. And that's a huge danger. A sense of British identity has to mean much, much more than that. That is something that has run through the last 40 years consistently uh, from Westminster. Uh, it, it has seemed to me, viewing it across my entire adult life as I have, that there is often a tin ear the nature of a union state in Westminster. Very briefly, Corey, before I want to ask you about the pandemic as well. The internal market bill and Brexit in generally, in general, does it change the equation in, in, in Scotland? I think so. I think that the process of Brexit and the process through which Brexit has been negotiated very much exposed the weaknesses of the UK constitutional settlement. We see the um, see the weakness of the Sewell Convention. We see the absence of a, of a robust system of intergovernmental relations to allow governments to come together and hash out these issues. And so I think Brexit very much exacerbated existing tensions. Uh, And the pandemic, uh, devolved powers have never been so publicly and visibly exercised as they have, as they have both in Wales and in Scotland, and indeed in Northern Ireland over the last 12 months or so. Do you think the pandemic has changed opinion not just in the three devolved nations, but in England as well, about the nature of the way this country is governed. Because on the one hand, we see the devolved countries pursuing a path independently of Westminster, but at the same time, the furlough scheme and all the other um, financial support that's been necessary has come from the UK Treasury. So it's a double-edged sword for uh, both sets, but for, for both sides of the independence argument, isn't it? Corey first. 
I think it's it's definitely been a lesson in how the devolution settlement worked uh, works. Um, we see different regulations in different parts of the UK, and that's exposed some of the devolved competencies, how things operate, um, both within Scotland and Wales, but throughout the UK as well. And it's perhaps outlined some of the limitations of the, of the current constitutional settlements, as well as those failings of, of intergovernmental relations, given that coordination between, between the governments appears to be quite limited. Darwin, I, I've often get the impression from listening to UK government briefings that they are sometimes quite reluctant to say the changes that they're, or the, the policies that they're announcing are relate to England only. They talk as though they relate to the United Kingdom because they are UK office holders. Do you think there's a sense among ministers that's, that sort of fessing up to the fact that they're announcing policy for England only, that they feel diminished in some way, that Boris Johnson is the prime minister of England in this respect, and that Matt Hancock is the health secretary of England rather than the UK? They, they hate it, Alan. Um, you know, I know the way I've dealt with them over the years. They absolutely hate it. Uh, and, you know, for example, you'll hear quite often now Matt Hancock describes as the secretary of health in England, they hate that as well, because I mean, for a, for a government from a party that, that embraces competition in the economy, it hates competition in politics. Uh, and the very idea they hate the, the, the one phrase that really winds some of them up is the phrase the four nation approach, because they don't think there are four nations. They think there's one nation. That's the end of it. But what we have seen in both Scotland, and in Wales, is that poll after poll after poll has shown the public are far more supportive of their own governments than than the government in Westminster. Uh, you know, in Wales, the, the performance of the Welsh government is rated far more highly than the performance of the UK government. Now, that, I think, annoys them as well. I mean, what we've had to suffer in Wales is you know, whenever we, we've seen infection rates go up and down in every country. We've seen vaccination rates go up and down in every country. A few weeks ago, we were being hammered politically because all oh, vaccination rates were seen to be slow. Now we're ahead of everyone else. Now infection rates are lower than everyone else. That's all of a, all of a sudden, that's gone quiet. And we even tr- now have Conservative MPs trying to claim that this is down to the UK government. It's nothing, it's nothing to do with them. So the UK, you know, the UK government has tried to play politics with this. Let's not be naive about this. They have tried on occasion to say, look how bad Wales is and look how good England is. Well, that's, a, that's always a, a dangerous place to be because things change so quickly with, with the virus. But yeah, just to answer your question, certainly in Wales, where we have an undeveloped media compared to Scotland, look, most people in Wales read papers published in England. Uh, which is why we had the Brexit vote we did. You know, people today will wake up and they will be reading newspapers that don't have a Welsh edition. Uh, and more than anything else, what uh, COVID has done is bring home to them the, the the reality and nature of devolution, and they like it. And indeed, it's probably brought it home to a, a, an, an English audience in a way that uh, nothing else in the last 20 years of the devolved administration's existence has. But I'm going to draw it to a close there. Um, you've been listening to Constitutionally Sound, a podcast by the Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. My thanks very much indeed to Carwin Jones and to Corey Brown-Swan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>